Thank you. You're welcome, sweetie. Have a good day. The demand for healthcare professionals who deliver both comfort and critical care is growing. FindNursingSchools.com connected me with an accelerated Bachelor's of Nursing degree program in my area with expanded capacity so I could complete the program in 16 months. Now I'm on the path to an in-demand career that offers job stability, flexible schedules, competitive pay, and the choice of where to work. Visit FindNursingSchools.com to begin your journey today. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. As I promised last week, I said we'd be back in 167 hours, and here we are, back once again. I'm going to be joined tonight by Dr. Thomas Eddie Bullard, who is a, uh, a good friend of mine. Uh, he tells me that he took an interest in UFOs as a child in the 1950s, and that that interest is interest has persisted until today. He got his doctorate in folklore and got away with writing his dissertation on UFOs, which is really wonderful, although I brought UFOs into my dissertation as well, but in a sort of a different venue. He then went on to collect accounts of the 1890s Phantom Airships and write a comparative study of UFO abductions. And we'll get into both of those things here uh, later on. He has served on the board of QFOs and the Fund for UFO Research and in 2010 published his book, The Myth and Mysteries of UFOs, that explores the interactions of our ideas and beliefs about alien visitation and other world beings with the human experience of UFOs, which is not to say he's calling all of UFO sightings or myth. It's just bringing all of that mythology to the forefront and understanding how it interplays with the sightings of UFOs. He is currently participating in a collaborative effort to go back to the basics and study the phenomenology of UFOs as a physical phenomena and also write a book about the phantom airships. And I about that simply because I'm trying to do this wonderful introduction here and there's all these big words that I have to pronounce properly and I find myself always stumbling through these uh, explanations. But I thought I did that one pretty well as a matter of fact. Eddie Bullard, welcome to A Different Perspective. Hello, Kevin. How have good you be, been? These, good to hear from you again. Yeah, I was going to say, how, how have you been these last few years that we haven't <laughs> talked? <laughs> I've been, been very good. I see you're uh, doing well, like I've seen your latest book. It's a good one. Ah, thank you. Thank you. It, that would be the Encounters in the Desert, the uh, Sequoia yes, case. Yes, Sequoia case. You, 
Have you actually read the book or uh, just seen I it? I haven't gone through it in detail, but I, I just got it a few days ago, actually, and I've looked through it. And it, uh, it looks uh, looks like a very impressive uh, study of the uh, of the events. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate those kind words. And I liked your book, too, uh, as you know, when I wrote the review of it a couple of years ago. Yes, yes. Uh, in your yes, in your in your biography, we talked a little bit about the eighteen um, nineties Phantom airships. This would be the great airship of eighteen ninety seven, I think, that we've all talked about. Right. And a, and a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a number of people about um, some of those sightings, and I had mentioned the Alexander Hamilton sighting, the great calf napping, which might be the first recorded cattle mutilation by an alien spaceship type thing. And I know that you've studied that at length, and I know Jerry Clark has studied that at length. Can you yeah. give me an a encapsulation of that sighting so we can kind of jump off from there? Yes. Uh, this was in the middle of April of 1897. Uh, reports of airships had been coming in since uh, November of 1896, and they'd moved into the, uh, into the Midwest in, in, the, uh, in April, late March and April. And Kansas was one of the states that had been visited very heavily. And there's this uh, local story that came up that uh, this farmer, Alexander Hamilton, who'd been a state legislator and uh, was otherwise, you know, a very solid citizen, he said that he heard a commotion in his uh, cattle yard the night before. And he and his hired man and the rest of his family rushed outside and they saw this enormous airship, 300 feet long, and it had a big searchlight that was sweeping the, uh, the, the cow lot and the surrounding area. And it was manned by some very strange-looking creatures, unlike anything he'd ever seen before. He never actually called them aliens, but the implication was that there's some kind of Martian that was operating these things, Martians being the, the usual alien entity that people would think of in those days because it was well believed that Mars was inhabited by a race of super intelligent beings that built canals and maybe could even fly to another planet. So when the uh, aliens sighted uh, the, the people coming out, they started to raise up the, the airship. It started to ascend into the air, but it stuck for some reason and Hamilton happened to notice that there was a rope around the neck of one of his cows, and it was stuck in a, the cow was stuck in a fence. So he tried to cut the rope, couldn't cut it, so he cut the fence, and the airship went away carrying the, uh, the cow. So, of course, he was much amazed by that, and the next day he went out to look for his, his uh, cow and couldn't find anything. But when he went into town to speak to the sheriff, it seems that someone, some other farmer, neighbor, or some miles away neighbor, had found the uh, hindquarters and skin of the cow, of a cow, in, a, in an open field, a dusty field, and there was no footprints around it. So he was uh, much amazed by that, and uh, Hamilton said he didn't know what to make of all this. The newspapers had a great deal of fun with it. Uh, there was a the Kansas City Times wrote a poem, something like uh, 
swoops down like bird of prey, grabs the beef and gets away. away. Hamilton, who owns, owned the veal, stands trembling by and sees the steel. Peruse the story. It's a beaut. So, you have this memorized? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was uh, quite amusing. But is, is, is this the first uh, sort of documented case of a spacecraft or a dirigible or whatever it was stealing a cow and leaving the eventually leaving the marines, remains behind? There were several uh, stories of, uh, of airships that supposedly were, uh, you know, one was fishing and it uh, got a big fish that it uh, dropped down onto a boat that was uh, approaching it. But that's about the only one I can remember offhand of uh, of a cow being mutilated or stolen. It was was Alexander Hamilton any relation to the guy that was uh, killed in the duel by Aaron Burr? Do you have any idea? No, I don't think I I have no idea, but I very much doubt it. Well, you know, there's another Alexander Hamilton who pops up in history. And I go off on a tangent here because periodically I do that. He was riding okay. with he was riding with Custer at the Washita when they attacked Black Kettle's village. Uh, uh, Lieutenant Alexander Hamilton was killed in that, and I use the term battle loosely because it it really wasn't much of a battle uh, given given what Custer had done and that sort of thing. True. But uh, you know, but there are are instances of of Alexander Hamilton's I guess popping up in our history and I was just curious about if there was any connection among those Alexander Hamilton's I suppose. No, I don't think there's any connection in this case. I think or, or the only connection would be that he's a famous person in uh, US history and a lot of people <laughs> named him after him. Just like you have a lot of southerners who are named, you know, Robert E Lee or something like that. Okay, uh so Hamilton is told about the mutilated remains of his cow. The newspapers are making fun of him. Uh, and I, I mean, if you go back and you read the newspapers of 1897, there were an awful lot of tongue-in-cheek articles written about this stuff. A great many. And in What's, this case, we have some very good reason to think that the whole story was a hoax. But I, it, it popped up. It popped up in UFO literature, I think, in the 1960s when Ed Ruppelt kind of pointed out that there were these stories from, at that point, you know, just um, 50, 50 years earlier. Um, and, and it was accepted as an authentic tale. I mean, it, it was one of the it better was. of the stories. And, and you could point to newspaper articles about the story. And, and you're saying now that it's probably not true or isn't true? Well, I'd say the evidence is very good that it isn't true. For one thing, an editor of a country newspaper wrote a letter to Hamilton asking him, uh, you know, is this really true? And Hamilton wrote a letter back to this editor, you know, this was a week or two after, saying that I can't uh, lie to a, uh, a country newspaper editor. Uh, it might have been a firefly, you know, at, uh, at the end of a, a stick or something, and, uh, you know, I didn't have my I. You know, my eyesight's not what it used to be, and it might be something of that sort. So he was obviously saying that, uh, you know, this was a fake. And Jerry Clark, when he uh, researched this, found out that Hamilton was a member of a local liars club. Now, they would meet every Saturday and try to tell the, the biggest whoppers. And it consisted of the most uh, respected men of the uh, of the area, uh, judges, lawyers, uh, 
you know, oil company representatives, businessmen, such like. They all signed an affidavit saying that they had known Alexander Hamilton for years and years and that he was a you know, fine and upstanding person, and uh, they didn't think he would ever tell a lie. Well, let me, let me interrupt here because yeah. I, th I think we need to put everything in context here because what needs to be understood is Hamilton didn't invent this tale out of thin air. There had been stories started in, I think, 1896, late 1896, about these airships, and they're all kind of what we would think of as an airship. I mean, a, 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 a lighter than aircraft. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. And that sort of thing flying around the right. country. And right. they had been reported in lots and lots of newspapers. And if you go back to the 1897 newspapers, you can see lots and lots of these stories, most of which are really terrible. Uh, uh, in one case, I remember the they, they talked to the crew and they said they were on their way to uh, Cuba to bomb the Spanish, for example. So it's clearly... Right. Right. An idea that was a terrestrial crew as, as opposed to something alien. But these stories are all around the country, especially in the Midwest at the time Hamilton came up with the story. Right, yes. They were almost daily in the, in the, the major newspapers. And local people, well, it was almost a matter of, of uh, you know, civic pride. If you didn't have an airship, you were just kind of a, you know, a backward place. So people would go out and, and uh, either fabricate a story or see something that they thought was a, an airship or set up a fire balloon so that uh, people could, could see them. And uh, the paper could then say that, uh, hey, our town's up to date. It's had an airship. But there were, uh, I found probably 2,000 reports of these airships within, uh, you know, just a few months. So it was a very sizable uh, wave. But most of them, people were seeing, they were actually seeing things. It was just mostly uh, planets or fire balloons. The more elaborate stories were, were almost entirely hoaxes. Well, let me break in here because we're going to have to take our first break shortly. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Aurora, Texas case as well, which was another great airship story. But also the idea, I think there was a, a, a article published in the Yates County newspaper that uh, where it was an admission that this whole thing was a lie. Uh, yeah, so that's we'll, the thing I was just, just mentioning. We're going we're gonna to get to that in just a moment. Okay. We will be back with Eddie Bullard talking about UFOs and talking about the 1897 airship. Maybe talking about abductions if we can get there. As I always say, take a look at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com because there's always additional information that shows up there. Or I've covered this in the past in some fashion and you can access more information about that. And as Eddie Bullard mentioned, thankfully, uh, my new book is and it's been out for just a couple of weeks, is Encounter in the Desert, and it deals with the uh, Socorro UFO landing of April uh, 1964. We will be back right after this.
Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. I am back with Thomas Eddie Bullard, my friend, who I've known for literally decades. When we went away, we were talking about the Alexander Taft napping. Uh, I think that one of the important points is that when Hamilton was queried by a newspaper reporter or a newspaper editor about the specifics of the case, he altered the story significantly. Did I read that right or did I understand that correctly? Well, I don't think he so much altered it as uh, he just made a hubris confession that uh, it was all a hoax, that he was just uh, making it up for the fun of it. And that's held up by the, uh, by the fact that there was this liars club of which he was a member. And, uh, and I think he pretty much outdid everyone else. Yeah, I think that would take the cake. That story. Yeah, yeah, that think... did. That pretty much did. Um... Jerry Clark talked, I think, to his daughter. Would that be correct? His daughter back yes. in the 1970s. Yes. And right. what was her what was her reaction to the story? What did he what did she mention? Well, she's the one that uh, told him about the uh, the Liars Club. That's where that information came from. And uh, I mean, it was it was pretty revealing. And then, in addition, there's the, this uh, this newspaper that published the, the letter that. Uh, that Hamilton sent, where he does confess. Once you know, this was the first time he confessed that the thing was a, well, a you hoax. S- you say the first time he confessed. Were there other confessions? Well, uh, no. I, I guess uh, this, this one confession that we we have on paper, and then there's the information about the Liars Club. Well, I've done a lot of research into the 1897 airship as well, you know, and I, I was fascinated uh-huh. by it. I think I've told told the story on the on the program before that I had gone down to the Cedar Rapids Gazette and I was reading the stories about the uh, the airship there, and there was a story in the newspaper about the airship crashing in Waterloo, Iowa. Yeah, and, uh, yes. and the and the front page <laughs> of the paper says, you know, uh, send us 500 words, no crap or no garbage or 
something like that. Right. And I delightedly copied that story down. I mean, pushed the button and got a hard copy of it and went home. And I thought, you know, I should have looked at the next day's paper. And I went back to the next day's paper, and it explained what the uh, airship was. I mean, it was it was a hoax generated by the people in Waterloo. What astonished me was um, when I did my book on the um, government UFO files, the editor of the book had actually found a photograph of that yes, airship. Yes, yes. And it just astonished me. It looked like the drawing that was in the Cedar Rapids Gazette, but here's this actual photograph of the thing. But right. the point is, the whole story was a hoax, and... Yeah, I the think model. Little, it wasn't really a model. It was big enough oh. on the it was on the fairground. They yeah, were well, it was a mock up. It, it never flew. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And the and the uh, the the leader of the expedition had fallen off off off, off the airship and drowned in the Cedar River. All these really yeah, nice that story. Uh, and they had some guy by the name of Feathers who claimed to be the uh, other uh, the passenger, and uh, he was kind of crying over uh, Professor Stormout who fell. <laughs> fell overboard and was drowned and but people went off dragging the river the the, the 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 stories that really have caught the fascination of the people when i say ufologists and everybody else was the alexander hamilton calf nap, napping and i don't know why i was hesitating over the name alexander hamilton calf napping yeah. and the other one was the crash of an airship in aurora texas uh in april of 19 of 19, 1840, 1897, 1849, yeah. I don't know, 1897, in April of 1897, I got it out there. Uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that story. Okay, according to this story, uh, one morning, uh, oh, within a few days of, of when the uh, when Hamilton told his story, an airship uh, passed over the small town of Aurora, Texas, and it wasn't, it was obviously something wrong with it. It wasn't flying properly, and it crashed into Judge Proctor's windmill and exploded. And after the uh, after the thing had burned out, people uh, searched the wreckage and they found the charred body of a strange being who didn't look like any normal human being. And someone gave the opinion that it was probably uh, a man from Mars. So the people had a uh, funeral for him, and that was the end of the story. There was really uh, no follow-up on this thing, which is, seems rather strange, given that it was a, you know, a pretty spectacular event, if it really happened. But that's the problem. It didn't happen. In well, those days... I, I was going to say, one of, the, one of the sources quoted was uh, Captain... T.J. Weems, I think, of yes, uh, Weems. Uh-huh. of the of Signal, the Signal Corps. Corps. Yes, the yeah. Signal Corps. Back in those days, when you said Signal Corps, you're thinking intelligence. You're thinking um, CIA type things. Although the CIA <laughs> clearly didn't. Re- but I mean, the implication was he had some kind of secrety function there. But Weems right. wasn't a Signal Corps officer, was he? No, he was a blacksmith. And he lived in Aurora. And he lived in Aurora. And the whole story. It was published in one paper, the Dallas Morning News. Now, a lot of papers picked it up, but nobody else actually went to the site. Nobody else uh, reported actually seeing it. That Cedar Rapids case, they were running special trains for people coming into town to see that that mock-up airship. And you can find uh, people writing letters that uh, you know, I passed through this town and uh, and saw the 
the fake airship. So there were a lot of people, you know, if it, it was a real thing. There was really something to see. And people flocked there, some from several states around, to see that thing and wrote about it. But you don't get any of that for the, uh, for the Aurora crash. Now, that, beca- that crash became famous in the late 60s when some uh, UFO researchers went there to try to uh, excavate the body. Actually, wasn't that in the 70s? Well, it might have been the 70s. And yeah. I say I, that I say that because at the time, in the late early 70s, uh, late 60s, late 60s, late, late, late 1969, I was I was stationed at Fort Walters, Texas, and I actually went to Aurora, Texas. And again, on my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, I have a picture of Aurora, Texas, and what it really looked like at that time, and and a couple of pictures of the graveyard because I took photographs inside the graveyard. Yeah. There was a, a a newspaper writer who had resurrected that story in the late '60s, and that gave uh, you know an interest that carried over for several years. When a I think an Oklahoma UFO organ. The we're going family style deal because I want a bite of your Big Mac and I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your fillet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Station decided they were going to go there and you know crack the mystery. Unfortunately, they went to the graveyard and started digging and the uh, without asking any of the residents, and uh, they didn't like that. <laughs> they soon found themselves confronted with shotguns and such like, and um, never did get to excavate that grave, although well, <laughs> the question is, was there ever a grave at all? Well, there's a number of people I've seen on YouTube, uh, I'm going to say YouTube, but I'm not sure it's up on YouTube, uh, videos who were interviewed in the 1970s. I mean, people who were alive in 1897, they were their children at the time, clearly. So they were 75, 80 years old when they were interviewed that claimed that they had seen the airship and seen the wreckage. What about those kind of people? Uh, I remember there were three of those. One of them said he saw the airship, but... He wasn't in town. He was somewhere out of town. He was about four years old and with his father. And his father went to town and came back saying uh, there was a lot of talk about it, but he didn't say anything about uh, you know actually seeing it. And there was another man who was uh, clearly pretty senile by that, that time, and uh, he might have said something, but... Uh, it didn't sound very much like he actually saw the thing. And so you know, I'm not uh, too convinced that these people who claim that they saw something, uh, or at least ufologists said they saw something, are really accurate. Well, let me let me put my spin on this now, because I was there, and I was thinking about this earlier, and it must have been in 1971 that I was there. And I talked to a lot of those people there, and I talked to the people at the Wise County a historical society in Wise, Aurora's in Wise County. Right. And I talked to a number of those people, and there was one guy with these really gnarled hands that uh, I, I oh, guess was, yes. Yes. was, was um, rheumatoid arthritis and whatnot. Yes. And yes. I talked to that guy, and he said nothing happened. And a couple of years later, I see him in a documentary telling this story about the airship and how it really had uh, crashed there. Right. He moved into town sometime, you know, later, 
uh, he found out that uh, the thing was supposedly had supposedly crashed on his property, and he thought maybe the well had been contaminated by some kind of radiation, and that was the cause of his rheumatism. But uh, you know, he wasn't there at the time that the, the, of the actual event. In fact, he didn't uh, move there until some time later. So you know, he was someone who was creating a, a way of understanding his condition. Well, let me put let me put this whole Aurora story to rest because there were two histories of Wise County written um, yes. within within a decade of this alleged crash. Within a decade, yeah. I mean, so the people there would have been well aware of what had happened had it happened. Neither of those histories mention anything about the Aurora crash. That's right. It would have been one of the most uh, you know incredible stories of all time. It would have been the the crowning uh, uh, event of the of the county's history. And they make not a mention of it. And only 10 years have passed. And uh, Cliff Cates, who wrote one of them, was also mentioned in another uh, a person who had, had sighted an airship that, that uh, passed over. So if he had really thought there was something to it, you would think he, of all people, would have included it in his, uh, his history. But he didn't. So I would say that's a pretty clear indication that nothing really happened. It was Are just there... another one, one of these fake stories that served as a form of uh, popular entertainment in those days. Well, I think I think the other thing we need to need to point out is that you know it, it was an exciting story because for us in this time, because it talked about a UFO crash and the possibility of metallic debris being recovered and all of that kind of ancillary nonsense, and it's the right. same thing with the uh, Alexander Hamilton story that it was um, exciting because it was a calf napping and there was yeah. a, a story of creatures and that why it was uh, appealed to us in this time frame and and uh, isn't necessarily true. Are there any stories, and I've got just a couple of seconds here, any stories that uh, from the 1897 airship that you think might be authentic? No, I don't think so. I, I think we're all following uh, the wrong path looking for any kind of legitimate UFO in this material. It's unfortunate, okay. but that's the way I think it is. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I know I've, I've discussed this with Jerry Clark, and he thinks there's a core of solid stories in there somewhere, but I just don't think yeah. there are. I, I think it's no. it's all pretty much uh, imagination. We're going to have to take another break here in just a couple of minutes. When we come back, I think uh, we'll move from the great airship of 1897, which I think we've now exhausted, and move into <laughs> – you did a you did this wonderful abduction uh, – analysis that I think we need to talk about a little bit and see if we can learn anything uh, from that. Uh, we'll, so we'll do that when we come back. We will uh, also put stuff up on uh, my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you get a chance, take a look at uh, Eddie Bullard's book, The Myth and Mysteries of UFOs. It's by Thomas E. Bullard. Uh, and I think you'll get an interesting insight to some of the ways the information has been uh, published and the way the information is seeped into our society from other arenas, such as science fiction. Science fiction is uh, an important part of that. But we will return uh, right after this, so stick around. Yeah. 
This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the X-Zone Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. Well, unbelievably, I've annoyed Eddie Bullard, and he stomped off the phone, and he's gone. No, I'm just making that up. I wanted to do something different than just saying we are back, you know, which everybody does. Take it a little bit different. I don't know. I've just gone insane here. Uh, I think we've pretty pretty well exhausted the airship. Um, he and I agree that it's probably uh, just stories made up for the sake of making them up at the time and kind of the excitement that they generated. Um, and I, I'll say again, if you want more about uh, the airship, you might want to take a look at um, Jerry Clark's UFO Encyclopedia simply because he has a long section on the airship and he gives a little bit of a different take than, than uh, Dr. Bullard and I have come up with here tonight. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, and I, I did a book with Russ Estes, Bill Cohn called The Abduction Enigma, which offended practically everybody in the UFO community in some fashion and offended the homosexual community and offended uh, uh, straight people, just offended everybody as near as I can tell. But but the point was, we were looking at the abduction phenomenon, I guess, with a little bit different eye. But one of the sources that I went to that I found that was very important was this uh, two-part study or this two-volume study that uh, Eddie had done on abductions for the Fund for UFO Research. Tell me a little bit about that study. In the early, um, in the early uh, 1980s, uh, the Fund for UFO Research uh, was interested in getting someone to catalog and do a comparative analysis of the of the of the abduction reports that had been published in the literature up to that time. Things were just kind of getting started with uh, with abductions at that time, but there was still quite a number of uh, cases scattered through the literature. So I went around, gathered as many as I could, and I came up with close to 300. Which I thought was, which actually surprised me. I didn't think there was uh, nearly that many at that time. Now these were not necessarily full uh, reports. They were suggestive of abduction in some cases, and others were well researched and and pretty elaborate. So what I came up with was 
several groups of cases. I mean, some just didn't have enough information to be of much use. But there were about 103 that were well-researched and that seemed to be reliable, in the, at least in the sense that uh, somebody had investigated them, somebody had at least met with the witnesses and got a positive uh, sense from them that they weren't, uh, you know, making a joke or uh, were mentally stable. And, th- and then I had a, another group that, uh, although that had a lot of detail to it, there were, that these were cases where the investigators were not pleased with what they saw. They thought there was something really wrong with these people or the, or the story. And then doing a comparison, I, it, it was just a matter of seeing what, what you could find in the, in the stories themselves. And what I found was there was a considerable consistency in the course of events and in the, the descriptions of, of many of the, uh, of the aspects of the case, like what did the occupants look like? What did the UFO look like? What did the interior of the UFO look like? And, uh, you know, this was a useful thing to have at that time in particular because, as I said, it was just, the thing was just getting going. And, of course, it was 1987 when I actually finished it. And there had been a lot more material that had come in into, into view at that time. But it did give me a feeling that there was a, a surprising consistency in the reports, at least the reliable reports, that didn't seem to be resulting from a major exposure to the literature or any kind of uh, media influence that was available at the time. Well, one of the things one of the things that struck me, uh, and it was in talking with Cora Lorenzen from APRO and a couple of other people, is she was telling me that there were things that they were would hold back so they could attempt to verify the authenticity of other reports that came in. And he said, he said that the people weren't in communication with one another, the abductees, the people experiencing this, were not in communication with one another. But I flipped that on its head and thought, you know, all the investigators are in communication with one another. Wouldn't that tend to influence some of the reporting and, and the way things are being uh, told simply because um, they're, they're looking for commonality and might have kind of inadvertently or subconsciously created that commonality? Well, one interesting thing about these earlier reports is the people who were doing the investigations really weren't so much communicating with each other. Like, out of that 103 reliable cases, there were 50 different investigators. Some of them you've heard of, some of them you haven't. But it wasn't predominantly a Bud Hopkins or, well, he was, he was just getting started. And, well, Leo Sprinkle uh, had uh, done a number of cases, but you just didn't have the kind of familiarity that you would have now, the kind of communication you would have. There might be some of that, yes, but uh, with at least at that time, you would have less. Well, now, I it's noticed... not to say that... Go oh, ahead. Go I'm ahead. sorry. Go ahead. Go uh, ahead. Now, it, 
it should be said that they're probably not as consistent as they have become. Not all the aliens were, you know, the short gray types. There was a, there was a considerable difference, but uh, not as much as I thought there would be. And the, the thing is, when you go to the the unreliable cases, they're all over the place. You get all kinds of different descriptions, courses of events, but the reliable cases are much more coherent, much more alike. That's well, one thing, thing that struck me. Well, one, one of the things that I noticed, and I've investigated a couple of these cases early on, and uh, I think the uh, Pat Roach abduction of 1973, yes, yes. Um, I am now convinced in today's world that that was an episode of sleep paralysis as opposed to alien abduction. Yeah. And did did you did you find anything like that? I mean, terrestrial explanations. That, clearly, Pat Roach is rela- relating to me and to um, Harder, Jim Harder, the events as best she could, especially under hypnosis, and we now understand the problems with hypnosis. Right. But, but. Uh, the, the thing about it was, it, it well, as I'm trying to say, she, she believed what she was saying. She believed it was alien, but I am convinced it was sleep paralysis based on the, uh, the symptoms of sleep paralysis. And I know what, when you were doing your research, that really wasn't a factor in that. But looking back on it now, can that be a reliable explanation for some of the cases as opposed I to all of them? I think it definitely is, yes. I, I think... Uh... One thing you do have to do is is look back from what we know now on the way that these things were researched. And sleep paralysis, I think, is definitely a part of, of the phenomenon, and understandably so. We don't have an understanding of sleep paralysis in this culture. In many other cultures, uh, they have an explanation for it. It's like in uh, uh, Newfoundland, it's called the old hag or Japan and China each have have terms for it. We don't have that. And anybody who has the experience is going to be very frightened, and they're going to have no understanding of it. So they're going to reach out for something that says, hey, I'm not crazy, this really happened. And the alien abduction just fit in with that, so there was a a good reason to assume that if you had some kind of... Uh, of the sleep paralysis kind of experience, that terror that comes in the night thing, that you would want an explanation for it, and alien abduction, why not? Well, I'm going to go back to something else I kind of touched on, and this is my observation with Jim working with Jim Harder, especially on this case, was that um, he was he was somewhat careful not to lead the lead Pat Roach and the other uh, subjects while they were under hypnosis, but between sessions, we would discuss UFO sightings. And I remember him sitting there uh, mentioning to Pat about the Betty Hill stuff and how she was examined in the very next um, hypnotic regression session. She was, she said under hypnosis, uh, I don't remember being examined, but I know I was. And I think that he introduced that idea to her not during the the session proper, but but in between the sessions, because uh, we I mean we did we were there for over a week talking to her and other members of the family about this uh-huh. thing, uh-huh. and 
and you know, at the time, it, it didn't strike me that he was doing anything particularly egregious. And I, st I, I still don't think he was doing anything egregious. He was just poor technique. But each time yeah. he would bring up something, that would appear in the next uh, session. And I go back looking at my notes, and I go back looking at the transcripts of the um, the tape sessions, and it, it becomes clear exactly that he was feeding her information prior to the hypnotic regression session. I think unconsciously he was doing it, or he was doing it in, as a way of relaxing her before they got deep into a session. Right. Well, see, that, that's another thing that we've learned a lot about, is uh, the, the problems with hypnosis, the problems with human memory, suggestibility, uh, how people can pick up on things. Like there's uh, one explanation for the uh, the Hill case. Is That's that, Barney uh, and Betty Hill, the, the couple yeah. that kind of set this whole thing up off in the United States back in 1961 when they were abducted in um, Vermont or New Hampshire, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, it is true that there was a, an episode of uh, The Outer Limits that aired about a week and a half before Barney went under hypnosis and described the uh, Aliens with wraparound eyes. I'm, I'm actually going to interrupt you because because there's a better a better analogy. There was an episode of the Twilight Zone called Hocus Pocus, Pocus and Frisbee, with Andy Devine in it. He's abducted by aliens that have those kind of eyes. Oh, really? How? And, uh, when was that? Uh, when did that air? Um, I would have to go back and look at look at the notes, but it was in that in that time frame. And Betty Hill actually says to Barney, "Have you been watching the Twilight Zone?" Ah. But but uh, and, and I, I explore this on my blog, which is a wonderful way to lead into saying www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. But but I have a picture of the alien from the program on the uh -huh. blog, and it's got kind of the it's kind of kind of a gray alien type thing. Um, so I, I think that might be more of an influence, and, and, it, and it really doesn't matter. I, I, the, the episode aired before they went into the hypnotic regressions and the, the psych psychiatry with Dr. Benjamin Simon. So he clearly could have used that as an influence. But that's something that, I, that, we, that I've talked about on my blog, and I've talked about it in other places as well. Yeah. Well, either way, the suggestion was out there. But now... I'm not saying that uh, the whole case is false because of that or imaginary, only that uh, he may have picked up something. You know, if you're seeing something strange, you need some kind of crutch to lean on in your understanding. And you may draw on some, you know, even if it's an unconscious memory, it's still a memory. Well, let me, let me break in here because I have to. I don't want to, but I have to. When we come back, we're going to talk to uh, Eddie Bullard a little bit more about the abduction, uh, the abduction, the Hill case, the abductions in general in our last segment, and uh, we'll close it out at that point. So we will be back right after this, but remember, remember to take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and look for Hocus Pocus and Frisbee because that would be the episode that you wanted to uh, examine. We'll be back right after this. The Earth is under ever-increasing pressure from untenable lifestyles and growing populations. Yet, viable answers seem in short supply. What if I told you there's an ancient form that can empower you to take charge of your life? What if your entire family could be enfolded and supported by life itself? 
finding safe passage through challenging times. I'm Gwilda Wiecka, founder and director of Path Home Shamanic Art School with great news, an upcoming series of leading-edge online affordable classes based in an ancient form of shamanism easily learned and used by your entire family. Galactic Shamanism, Art of the Ancients, Key to Tomorrow are a series of online adult and children's lessons instructing your entire family on natural law, how to cooperate with and be supported by the powers of the universe. Visit findyourpathhome.com to find these unique and powerful classes. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365. I am joined by Thomas Eddie Bullard, Dr. Bullard, whose book, by the way, as I, I failed to mention as often as I should, The Myth and Mystery of UFOs, it's... Um, interesting study of the UFO phenomenon doesn't really conclude that the, all UFOs are myths, but brings in the influences of other uh, genre. And, and we were kind of talking about that when we went away, talking about how it's possible that the outer limits, and it was the Bolero Shield, I believe, is the episode, yeah. and uh, the Twilight Zone uh, suggested maybe the look of the alien creatures to Barney, uh, Barney Hill. But I, I point out that in The Interrupted Jury, Journey, which was the book done by John Fuller, Betty Hill gives a description of the alien creatures at the end where she talks about them having big noses like Jimmy Durante. And we now see the illustration of the hill abduct the, uh, uh, the creatures, the hill aliens, having no noses. And that would suggest an influence from science fiction or that kind of thing. Did you see a lot of that in the, uh, abduct in the abduction study you did? I think most of the, uh, most of the influences probably come from, uh, you know, the UFO literature or expressions of, of what people have seen, you know, whether it's by new on the news or something like that. Well, John, Max said, John Max said something. He said it to us when we were doing our research, and I, by us I mean uh, uh, Russ Estes, Bill Cohn, and me. Uh -huh. I said it on camera. 
And it's in the book, uh, Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind by Bryant, who was at the MIT conference about abductions. And he said there was a curious matching between the abduction researchers and the abductee stories, meaning that Bud Hopkins seemed to get cold calculating aliens. Bud Hopkins, I'm I'm sorry, Bud Hopkins, John Mack got the aliens with an Eastern philosophy and and, um, David Jacobs got aliens that were bent on invasion, I guess, uh, creating high beds to take over the United States. Um, doesn't that suggest that there's an awful lot of influence by the abduction researchers into the way the stories are being told? It certainly does. And, uh, I, th- I think you've seen that more and more as things go along. I, I was more impressed by the coherency of those very early reports when it wasn't as obvious that there was such influence. There may have been some, but I don't think it's as, uh, nearly as, considerable as it is now i mean certainly we had the uh the close encounters of the third kind movie showing uh you know the, the familiar gray type alien and it obviously had a huge influence at least everybody who thinks about an alien now thinks pretty much of that rather than the little green men of the 1950s say doesn't doesn't but doesn't that observation hold for the United States, but not necessarily the rest of the world. Their abductees are seeing something, some other things. That's true. Uh, they, they do have more variety now. They're, they're in the earlier period. The reliable stories weren't that different in many cases. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's not that big a sample to begin with. I admit that. But uh, it did, it did seem like there was a little more consistency but then they've uh, had uh, you know kind of the gray type type of alien not necessarily gray but uh, the small dwarf humanoid that goes back to 1954 and it, it's been around for a while in in europe certainly well the you know prototypical U, uh, ufo abduction is in a movie called killers from space from i think it's 1954 which is what sparked that yeah. memory with um with our our good friend uh, who was the father and my friend Flicka, whose name escapes me at the moment for some bizarre reason peter peter graves peter graves oh, uh, okay but but i mean it's got the big eyed aliens and they're from a dying planet uh, they're not they're they're human-sized and humanoid. They're not really little gray aliens, but an awful lot of that abduction with the uh, scar on his chest is unexplainable. And, and uh, yeah. the missing time episode, I mean, it's all laid out in this movie, Killers from Space, which is really awful. The movie, yeah. Not, yeah. <laughs> by the way, it's yeah. really an awful movie. Yeah, it is. To, a, but I'm it does to, have a lot of those ideas and imagery. There's, a, there's no question about that. But that suggests a real influence from science fiction on these kinds of stories. And I mean, that really well, hasn't been... Ex- yeah, I would agree that that, uh, that there has been enough. Of course, the problem with science fiction is you've got all kinds of potential influences. Uh, I mean, you can go back to the 20s and 30s and you can see, uh, you know, sort of some evidence of the... the uh, the present alien, but there's also, you know, dozens of other types that haven't become popular for some reason. But I, I would still agree that there's definitely, there definitely seems to be a lot of influence and it seems to be getting more and more, though I think you've got enough 
especially with, uh, say, like Whitley Strieber, you've got a lot of internal, you know, UFO-related influences. Well, are there abduction accounts that you think are actual alien abduction accounts, or are they all kind of based in uh, a terrestrial cloak? Well, I think that there are some cases that are remarkably suggestive that something really happened. And I would even I would even go with the hills, the hill case on that. But you know what I when I talk about a mythology of UFOs, it's our ideas that we impose on that. Whatever happened to them, we're putting something more onto it something our beliefs influences that we've had from other elements of culture these things shape what we see what we think we see and how we describe what we see the stories we tell are you know in a sense mythical even when they're based on truth well didn't betty hill have an interest in ufos prior to the abduction yes she did and uh, she you know had a lot of uh, took even more interest after. Well, wasn't there, a, there's a letter, and I, I think this is an important point because it shows some of the things they've done in UFOs, or ufology. She sent a letter to Don, Ke Don Kehoe, who was the head of the yeah. National Investigation Committee of Area Phenomena, and when that letter was first published, there was a line left out of it where she suggested hypnotic regression, and that we've now got the whole letter so we can see that suggestion was made by Betty Hill. But wow. doesn't that kind of harm... I guess the idea of alien abductions because we see the manipulation of the information. Well, there again, I would think that uh, she was just simply mentioning something that was kind of common, uh, common psychological uh, uh, practice in those days. And uh, the, uh, the, uh, Benjamin Simon, the uh, the psychiatrist, was a uh, certainly a respected one and certainly did did know how to use the technique i'm i'm still troubled by the use of it but i i don't think it necessarily destroys the, po the prospect that there is a real event there no i'm not i'm not suggesting that at all i'm merely suggesting that betty hill was i guess in tune enough with what was going on around her in the world of UFOs and other things that she suggested hypnotic regression. And for some reason in the earlier accounts, the, the suggestion, her suggestion is left out of the accounts. And I think that is something that, you know, we got to plug back into the story. Uh, oh, yes, it. it is. But there again, I don't think she was thinking so much that there was a, a real, you know, something that, interfered with her memory unless it would be something that was so frightening or uh, strange that uh, it might be repressed. I, so, I don't know why she would suggest it, except that it was a common practice in those days. So, to get well, I the guess truth. It's, the it's bottom line, like a, well, I was going to say the bottom of, line question is, do you believe the abduction, the, the hills were abducted by alien creatures or do you think there's a trashly based answer? I think there might be, there's the possibility that there's a psychological uh, explanation for it. I still think, though, that it, as as story as abduction stories go, it's a, a most it's the most convincing one that there was some, you know, actual intrusion there, something literally alien. So 
yes, I would say that there is a reason to, to hold on to that one. But you you think a lot of the stories that we see today are probably something that we can uh, explain with terrestrial psychology and, and terrestrial uh, uh, observations as opposed to something alien. Oh, I definitely agree that uh, it's, there's probably a lot of sleep paralysis, uh, uh, nightmares, uh, you know, various other possibilities, fantasies, uh, even, uh, you know, fantasy proneness. Well, let me, can be. let me interrupt because we're running out of time and there's nothing oh. I can do about it. Time is running out on me. Uh, the book that he has just, I've not just done, but the book that he wrote, uh, The Myth and Mystery of UFOs, is a fascinating study of the UFO phenomenon, something that you should be uh, taking a look at if you have a real interest in UFOs. Um, Eddie, thanks so much for coming on the program. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Quite welcome, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> you have, and you have a good time wherever you may be in the next uh, few hours, I guess. <laughs> Uh, next week, I'm going to be joined by Adam Dew, he of Roswell Slides fame, and we'll see if we can't find out what precipitated the Roswell Slides and how that whole thing came about and how it all blew up. And if, uh, unless something bizarre happens in the next few weeks, that may be the series finale here for the uh, uh, different perspective. We'll see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Uh, other than that, take a look at Encounters in the Desert, which is my take on the Socorro landing from 1964. Always take a look at Roswell in the 21st century because there's a fine book that will tell you about uh, the case as it stands today. I'll have more information about tonight's program and some of the other things up at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And I will be back in 167 hours to talk about the Roswell Slides. Thanks for listening.